things if you all have that day off. And next week now, Jeffy and, and is going to take the service because he's leaving. Where's Jeffy? And he can go, but you're taking Averill with you, aren't you? Probably, yeah. And the baby, right? Okay. None of us are in favor of that at all. But uh, anyway, this next Sunday, Jeffy will be taking my place. And so it will be an opportunity for him to share with you what he's going to do. What do you think he's going to do? He's going to give up the military and become a pastor. Uh, I recommend that he become a pastor after he gets his retirement from the military. But uh, he's wiser than me. But anyway, it will be valuable for you to know that... uh, what he's going to do and what he's going to say, I think you'll find very interesting. So please don't miss that. Okay. Have I got all the announcements? Did I miss any? Buffet, congratulations, church directory, pictures. Some of you, this, uh, most of you have missed pictures. Okay, here's where I dismiss the kids. Kids, you can go. You don't have Jenna today, sorry. You have Jenna's associate. And uh, we know what he's like. So, yes, Jen, thank you for that. Were we successful, uh, Jack, with the CD? Thank you, sir, very much. Okay, here we go. May the 16th, 2010, lecture discussion number 24. And let me stop right there. Number 24. This is the last one. If you've missed the first 24, going to be a little tough for you today. But we'll see if we can keep you going as best we can. We'll back up and try to pick up as many stragglers as we can. But this is number 24 on Zechariah 11, Proverbs 6, 2 Thessalonians 2, Matthew 12, Matthew 27. John 13, Revelation 6, Revelation 13, Revelation 17, to name but a few of the places we have been in this latest journey of ours, seeking out that which is the eighth mystery. So what I'm going to tell you right off the bat today is the last one of these. I'll move to a different subject here in a couple of weeks. I haven't yet made up my mind, but it will not be anymore the eighth mystery, the man of sin, the lie, the worthless shepherd, the man of naught, or the man of nothing, really, the man of Belial, which is the man of Satan, the son of perdition, the seed of the serpent, the Antichrist. This is it, the last one of these, for a while. Twenty-four sermons on Judas is quite enough. But I know that we're going to have to bring it back from time to time. There is really no escaping the eighth mystery for very long. And if I'm correct, and of course, yeah, naturally I'm correct. We're in the church age of Laodicea. We're at the end of the church ages, in which case the eighth mystery is beginning to expose or reveal. And though I very much intended to provide a comprehensive analysis of every aspect on this subject, you guys know, by now you should know, that no such thing is really possible. I'm just going to do the best I can, and do, we'll do what we can. We'll raise, I'll raise as many questions as I could, as I could think of, as I could find, and maybe even answer one or two. If you've been here the last two or three weeks, I really have picked off all the answers. I did kind of hide them a bit. And today I'm going to give you the absolute solution to the eighth mystery. I'm going to prove something today.
that I really don't think you're going to find in very many places, if at all. So today I'm going to prove it, and then we'll set the issue aside and, just as I said, plan to revisit it. Nonetheless, 24 hours, that's what we have on the eighth mystery, and that's not bad. I would, again, tell you that uh, 24 hours of lecture on one mystery of any mysteries is, is pretty rare nowadays, but especially this one. And at the least, for those of you who have listened to each and every one of you, you get a little badge today, because we do take attendance here. And so today is your little badge. We take your picture. Do you notice that? We do. We take photographs of you. We follow you home. We know where you're at. You thought it was for the directory. <laughs> no, no. It's far more insidious than that. We get the nicest person we can and say, please stand here and let us take your picture. And it works. But you, some of you have listened to every one of them and bless your little hearts. That's amazing. And if, if nothing else, you're aware of one thing, that Judas is an extraordinarily complex person in Scripture. He is the most complex created being human in Scripture. Obviously, we have the angelic host and we have God himself. So, but by far, there has been no human being ever lived that is as complex as Judas. And I want you to be able to know that at least. And you'll be able to continue on your own little journey until you solve the wisdom that is Revelation 13, 18, the number of the beast, the number of a man, 666. You'll solve that. In fact, I have solved it for you already. You may not know it the last few weeks, but you will solve it yourself, and that's the point of this, is to get you to find it yourself. Remember, John wrote, the Apostle John wrote Revelation 13, 18. He said it's the number of the beast, the number of a man, 666. That's what he said. He wrote that verse, Apostle John. He also wrote John 13, 27, John 17, 12, John 17, 15, Revelation 17, 8. John screamed something at you. He wanted to make sure you knew something before he died. And he wrote all those verses. And those are pieces, by the way, that solved the 666. He gave them all to us. You would expect that, wouldn't you? He wouldn't just put something in his revelation, in the revelation of Jesus Christ that John wrote. He wouldn't just put it there unless he gave you the answer somewhere. And he did. So I've tried, done my best to give you the pieces that solve the 666. It's wisdom, you know, to understand the beast man. And I'll tell you right now, less than uh, there, there's not even 1% of the world understands the mystery of the 666, understands the beast man. Again, it is wisdom to know the meaning of the 666. And John provided the path to that understanding. He laid it all out and he screamed that he actually beat his hand on his podium. Here it is. And yet we miss it. It's a shame. John 17 is one of the cornerstones. It is essential to pass through John 17 on the way to Revelation 17. So today we're going to do just that, hopefully ending up with a nice, pretty bow on the present that is the eighth mystery. And, of course, bows on presents make me think of Christmas, right? And I'm going to throw this in here, and I hope you will understand. You think that I don't plan these things out, don't you? Yes, you do. You think that I'm just willy-nilly. Saturday comes, and I go, what am I going to do? And I just fly around and find something. No, way back on Christmas, I knew I was coming here soon. 
four or five, almost five months ago now, four months ago at least. On the Christmas service, I talked about the incarnation. I said, it's not Michaelmas, it's Christmas. Do you remember that? It's Christ sent. That's what Christmas means, Christ sent. It isn't Michael sent, it's Christ sent. And so I have the difference between the conception or the incarnation, but the conception, the better way to put it, the conception of Christ as opposed to the birth of Christ. Michael came on the birth of Christ. He did not come on the conception. Michael came to commemorate the birth, Luke 2.13. And most people say that he came on the first day, feast day of trumpets, feast day, the seven feast days, Passover, right? Unleavened bread, first fruits. Weeks, or Shavuot, if you will, Trumpets, Atonement, Tabernacle. Most say that Michael, Michaelmas, is on the Feast Day of Trumpets. Some say the Feast Day of Tabernacles. But everyone says that the birth of Christ, Michaelmas, the birth, when Michael came, was in September. There isn't any to disagree with that. So if you have a birth of Christ position in Christmas, then what are you? Yeah, wrong, and I'm really sorry for that. Not, not really, I'm really not sorry. That's a fake sorry, as you know. Okay, not everyone says that the birth of Christ was in September, but the entire early church did. The entire early church. The first 300s or so, first couple hundred years, Michael must late September, birth of Christ. Michael sent on the birth of Christ. No dispute. We've kind of... Change that, haven't we? Huh? Anyway, I bring this up because of Luke one thirty-five, and I'm going to read it again to you for those of you who missed Christmas. Luke one thirty-five. This is the conception of Christ. Christ sent at the conception. The Holy Spirit, and you can make the case that if uh, Michaelmas is in September, then the conception would be when? December. So we do celebrate the conception. Good for us. But we celebrate we got it reversed, don't we? The conception is not the birth, obviously. So we have mixed up Michaelmas and Christmas somewhat. Anyway, still kind of get it right a little bit. Anyway, I bring that up because on uh, Christmas I said this. I read Luke one thirty-five. Very important that you understand how this fits in. Some of you, as soon as I read it, you're going to know where I'm going, and I'll be so proud of you. I'll be so proud of you because you're going to know where I'm going and you're going to keep your mouth shut so you don't spoil it for the rest who have no idea where I'm going. But let me read it. The Holy Spirit, and this is in the King James, which got it right. If you have any but a King James Bible in this verse, you're in trouble. The Holy Spirit, not in trouble, but you won't understand the uh, the significance of this. The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. This is the Virgin Mary being told what's going to happen. She is going to carry the Messiah. The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing. There we go. That is key to know. The angel is saying to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come over you and shall overshadow you. And therefore also that holy thing which shall be born through you shall be called the Son of God. 
That's Gabriel said that to Mary, Luke 1.26, announcing to Mary that she is the Isaiah 7.14 virgin that will carry the holy thing, the Messiah. And I emphasized at our Christmas lecture the perfect translation provided by the King James Version. The holy thing is perfect. It's absolutely flawlessly translated. Not every Bible has it. Very few have it other than the King James. And it's very appropriate that because we don't have any human words that can describe what happened here. How God added humanity and put himself into a virgin and came out as a baby. That's God. And all we can do is call it a holy thing. We have really no idea how he did it. We have some idea why he did it. But it's God adding humanity to himself. It is theologically speaking called the hypostatic union. It is God and man joined together, if you will. God adding humanity. It's the great mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16. The great mystery, great without controversy, is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery. No one will dispute how great a mystery this is. Great is the mystery of the holy thing. You're not going to understand it completely. It is the hypostatic union. Anybody comes to you and says, I got the hypostatic union. I got God adding humanity all figured out. I figured out how infinite God put himself into humanity or added humanity to himself, throw chairs and run. Because that, that person is an idiot. We don't have any idea. That's why the King James is doing such a good job. Holy thing. The great mystery of godliness. And if you have a translation other than that in Luke one thirty five, correct it. Open your Bible. Scratch out whatever they have. And put holy thing. Literally it says, therefore also the holy thing being born. Anyway, I bring this all up again because of John 17. Because this is where it fits. It fits on the very last lecture that deals with Judas and the Antichrist. John 17. I consider John 17 the piece de resistance, if you will, or the coupe de grace. Sorry, not really. But I consider it the very final capstone to the eighth mystery, John 17. All that is Judas is dealt with. I could have skipped everything else we did in the first 23 lectures, just taken you to John 17. And we would have had it all done. But I didn't, because that wouldn't have been as much fun. John 17 answers the final questions. It answers the questions of Matthew 27, why Judas had no remorse. The word there is regret, by the way. It is not remorse. Why Judas had regret what he was doing in that procession, what he was trying to accomplish. How it is that Judas was not saved, and because so many people think he was just some misguided guy. And I'm going to tell you, Judas is not some misguided guy. He is profound evil. I will prove it today. He was not saved. Proverbs 6.35, I'm sorry, Proverbs 6.15 
says that he was not saved and would not be saved, and yet he got the first piece of bread from Christ at the Last Supper, if you want to call it that, at the banquet, at the Passover banquet, got the the first piece of bread, which is the bread of honor, friendship, and love. He is given the position of honor. He is said by Christ that he is the most loved of all of them, and yet he was not saved. The answer to that is in John 17. Why did Judas hang himself? The answer to that is also in John 17. His purpose for doing so. It wasn't because of remorse. It wasn't because he intended to to end his life in some kind of shame. It was a very cunning move. John 17 tells you so. And then how did Judas get to his own place? Acts 1. Where is his own place? How did he get there? And why did he go there? And many of you have figured that out by now. And congratulations. I'm very pleased for you. It's an exciting thing to know. But those of you who haven't, and for those who are still not sure about Judas, and for those of you who are coming for the first time today and have no idea what I'm talking about, because it's the 24th lecture of a 24-lecture series, um, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to prove something about Judas today that you probably have never heard before. And at least if you knew this, if you know this, you will catch up with everybody else that's here. Now, there are some people that are here that are pretending they've been to all 24 lectures, but they're pretending. And they're pretending that they understand what I'm saying. And again, they're pretending. So the key is, is to recognize that we have a lot of people who are faking it in this congregation. And so if you can't, if you don't know what I'm talking about, then do what everybody else does and pretend. It doesn't offend me at all. In fact, it's one of my things. Louis, if he were here, will tell you one of my famous lectures when I was coaching at Bartlett was to say all the time, I don't care if you like me. It doesn't matter that you like me. What I care about is that you pretend to like me and the people that pretend the best get to play the most. And it's very simple. Okay, John 17.1. Listen. Open up John 17, 1. Christ is going to say these words, and they're extraordinary. They're going to be extraordinary. You know they're going to be extraordinary. Why? Christ is saying them, and he's what? He's the holy thing. He's God who has added humanity. So here we go. We're going to read them together. And most of you will have things for headings. It says, Christ prays for himself. If you've got that, you can scratch that out right now. Does Christ need to pray for himself? He's the holy thing. So my Bible says that. So I put question marks and said, no, he prays. He doesn't pray for himself. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may all also may glorify you. By the way, who can glorify God? Think about that. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, how's he speaking here? He's speaking as if he has completed the job. Has he been crucified? Has he said it is finished? 
Has he shed his blood? Why is he speaking this way when he still has time? I have manifested, verse 6, your name to the men. Now, what's the obvious question? What men? Who? Whom you have given me out of the world, they were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. And they have received them and they have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And, some of you will have now there, it's really and. And I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Actually, it says just as we, the are is implied. Not in the original. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. But, your Bible might, may have except, get rid of except, it's not correct, it's but. None of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Remember, who's saying this? God's saying this. Who's the son of perdition? We'll stop here a second. Who's he talking about? That's Judas. God is calling Judas. The holy thing is calling Judas the son of perdition. That's very important. Is he mistaken, by the way? Is he really? You know, I probably should have used a better term than that. I, he picked the term badly. Didn't really mean that. There's some that will tell you that. But now I come to you that these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's who? That's us. That they may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Okay? There's John 17, 1 through 22. And that is absolute proof that absolute solves the eighth mystery. There it is. The prosecution rests. All is proven. All is now totally clear. I'm really done. I don't need to go on. I have given you the solution to the eighth mystery. I have. But we'll continue just in case a few of you haven't noticed it. Let's notice a few things ourselves and ask a few questions. First... 
Jesus Christ, God, the holy thing. You notice how much I'm going back here? That's a key clue. You should be thinking to yourself, why does he call himself the holy thing? But first notice that God, the holy thing, is speaking. How's he speaking or praying? If you want to say pray, go ahead. He's praying. I'll give it to you. What's he doing? I just read it. He's praying aloud. I always want to know, who's the stenographer here? Clearly, it's the Holy Spirit, after the fact, reminds them supernaturally what to write and how to write it and to get it all perfectly correct. But he's speaking aloud. Does he need to speak to God aloud? He and the Father are what? Do you think they got a private line? He and the Father are one. Can they communicate without speaking aloud? So if he's speaking aloud, praying aloud, who's he doing it for? Himself? That's why I get rid of Christ prays for himself. Christ is not addressing himself. He's not standing there just talking and everybody's listening in. And he doesn't know they're there. Is that your position? He's omniscient God. He knows they're there. He is speaking aloud specifically for their sake. Whose sake? The second person of the triune Godhood is speaking to the first person of the triune Godhead aloud. Ask why. Why is he doing this? Obviously, he's praying or speaking aloud for the sake of somebody who's listening. Who's listening to him? He tells you it's the men. He tells you, he says it over again. These, they, them, those, the men... Obvious question. What men is this that he's talking to? Who are they? Who be the men? Who be the them? The they, the these, the those? I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. That's what he says for their sake. He and the Father know this. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the triune Godhead, they know this. He's not repeating it for their sake. For themselves, he is doing it for the men that are listening to him. And he is saying, I have manifested your name to the men. So why is he doing it? Why is he speaking aloud? He can just go like me. He doesn't have to do anything, does he? He can communicate instantly, can't he? But he takes the time to do this for the men. Obvious answer to why he's doing it is he is teaching them something. He is preparing them for something. He is teaching doctrine to them. He is also giving them prophecy. He is worried about them, naturally, because he's outside of time. Worry isn't the right word, but he knows what's going to happen to them. And he knows what they're going to think. And he is giving them armor as well, because he knows they're going to be persecuted. And he knows that they're going to doubt. And he's doing what he can to remove all of that for them. And he does. The men to whom he is praying aloud to, speaking to, and I just went to a to a meeting the other day where they wanted to start it in prayer, and, and they did, of course, and then it was not really a prayer. It was instead a lecture to the rest of us. And my attitude is, is just write me a letter. Don't pretend to pray. You've heard the prayers, haven't you? Please, Heavenly Father, could you clean Steve's act up? He's a piece of junk. I've had that prayed over me and to me and about me 
5,000 times, just you know, give me a phone call. Don't pretend it's a prayer. It's a lecture. He's speaking aloud to these guys, praying aloud, so that they will hear him. And they will know what he said, and they'll remember what he said, what he said and they'll write down what he said. Okay, most of your Bibles will say it over the top of verse 6 correctly. Christ prays for his disciples. The men in the context here are his disciples, his eleven. And he reinforces that he is the one that is manifesting the name of the God, of, of, of the Godhead, of the true God. That is uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, by the way. He is the one who is... When we want to know who God is, we only have one option, and that is to see Christ. Christ is the manifestation of God. And he reinforces that to them. He is the physical of the invisible God. And John begins his gospel with this, his book. He begins his book with the word is God, the word became flesh, no one has seen God, John 1.18. Only thing we have seen that is God is Christ. Christ declares the glory of Jesus Christ is the invisible God made visible. That's what he is saying when he says, I have manifested your name. Christ affirms that these men believe that, by the way. He says, these you and have surely known that I came forth from you and they have believed that. They believe these men standing there believe that this is God. He is God. He is presenting God to us. He is the physical of the invisible. Okay, and he says that these men, these eleven, believe this fundamental truth. Remember, John is also the one in 824 that says, You must believe that Jesus Christ, John wrote these words down, You must believe that Jesus Christ is the I Am, or you will perish. These men believe that he is the I Am, they believe that he is the physical, they believe that he is the visible of the invisible, and therefore, what are they? They're all saved. Every one of them is saved. And then he goes on to say they can't not be saved. Every one of them is saved. They're always saved. They'll never not be saved. They're forever saved. That's doctrine. That's the doctrine of what? Eternal security, right? But I also want you to notice the glowing words of Christ for his disciples. This is God himself in the flesh speaking aloud with these men listening. And he said they kept and they know and they know surely and they believed. That's what he said. God's saying this about these 11 guys. He is very glowing. He is, this is a commendation. He is essentially saying these are incredible men. They kept. They know. They surely know. They surely know that I am the I am. And they believe it. Every one of them. And they're never going to be lost. These are great guys. These are incredible people. That's essentially what he's saying. I'm adding a little bit of that to that. But your first thought when Christ is talking about how wonderful these disciples are, it should be what? Really? These guys? Have you read anything that they did? Really? These shallow, weak, denying, scattering dummies? He, they're getting a medal? What is this? Soccer? Participation? Everybody gets a trophy, no matter what. These are the most unstable and and faint-hearted, disbelieving group ever assembled. And they prove it over and over and over again. 
They want to call down fire and kill people. They're crazy. And yet he gives them this, this amazing commendation. Why does he do that? They've they got to be standing there going, yeah, okay, I'll take the medal. I'll take the promotion, but, you know, I'm kind of hanging out because there's free food here, you know. Again, they're unstable, they're faint-hearted, they're disbelieving, they deny, they're shallow, they're vengeful, they scatter like rabbits, they show no faith at all, they don't understand a thing. He said they know and they know surely. My first question is, who's surely? Because these guys don't know anything. But not to God. To God, they are to be loved and honored and exalted. That's what he does to them. And I want you and me to take comfort in that. There's where we are in the story. That's us there, in case you think I never do applicational sermons. That's us. Look around. You are sitting next to. You are listening to. You're going to eat with. You're going to play music with card games with, pool with, you're to go home with a shallow, weak, denying, scattering dummy. It's going to happen to you. It's happening now. These guys are us. Cowards, backbiting, backstabbing, push their way to the front. Am I the best apostle? Can we kill those people over there? Let's bring down fire and kill all the Samaritans. This is us, and God sees us as precious, though I'm going to put our faith, our surely know, our keeping, our believing, our knowing. I'll put our faith on the board. There it is. Boy, oops, too big. There, I'll try it again. Yeah, too big. I'll try one more time. Oops, too big. There, that's pretty good. Do you see it? There's your faith. Not to God. That's what's extraordinary here. And take comfort in that. Our, though our faith is but a speck, we are said, this is said of us. We are loved, we are kept, we are precious, we are saved for all eternity. Notice that Christ, by the way, speaks both inside, and time, inside of time and outside of time almost simultaneously. He says, <coughs> uh, I don't know if you noticed that, I hope you did. And we should expect it, by the way, from the I am, from the great I am. But he says, I have finished the work. Well, that's an outside of time statement because the work isn't quite, you know, I, wait a minute, we've got a couple more pages to go. A few more days here. But he says, I've finished it. I am no longer in the world while I was with them. Wait a minute, he's talking to them. I come to you. Well, hold on again, that's a few more days. We've got, to get, we've got this feast day thing to work out. He speaks inside of time and outside of time simultaneously. Don't be surprised by that because he's what? He speaks of things that are yet to occur, occur inside of time as accomplished facts already. And of course he would he'd do that. We would expect him to do that. He is the creator of space, matter, energy, and time. He is the holy thing. This is another one of his declarations of deity. He says over and over again in this, uh, in this lecture that he gives him, if you will, in this speech that he gives him, in this lesson that he gives him over and over again, what's he saying to them? I have saved you and you have believed that I am God. 
Over and over. And I'm inside of time, but I'm outside of time. I am the same as Creator God. Now, I want you to note verse 9. You're, what are you asking? What does this have to do with solving Judas? Anybody asking that? Hope you are. But I want you to notice verse 9. I pray for them. Who is he praying for? He's praying for his disciples, the believers, the saved. I do not pray for the world. That is a solemn verse. Perhaps the most grave of all. I would say certainly in the New Testament, but maybe the most grave of all in Scripture. I do not pray for the world. This is Jesus Christ speaking, praying aloud. He is the judge of all, John 5:22. He is the solution to sin, Genesis 15, Matthew 4, Matthew 26:39. He is creator God in the flesh, and he says, I do not pray for the unsaved. I do not pray for unbelievers. I do not intercede for the lost. I do not mediate for the unsaved. I am not the high priest for the condemned. That's what he says. John 17:9 is frightening. I wrote here, it's seldom preached in today's seeker-sensitive, fuzzy-wuzzy churches. I'm gonna, that seldom is too strong a word. It's never preached. Never. The Laodicean church does not want John 17:9 read aloud. Let me read it again then. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. Let me read that again. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. The fact that the Laodicean church does not read John 17.9, doesn't like John 17.9, explains the vomit of Revelation 3.16. Okay. All of what I've just done, all the aforementions, very important, obviously. But I hope you're wondering, where is this final, definitive, capstone piece Peace de la resistance, coup de gras, that was promised at the beginning of today's lecture. I hope you're asking that. Because it's here. It's in 1712 through 15. Let me read it again. To those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I come to you when these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Who is he talking about here? He's talking about his disciples, isn't he? But that you should, and they're going to, they just found out something. What did they just find out? He's going to go and they're going to get left behind in a group of people that what? Hate them. Not good news. The sheriff is leaving them surrounded by the outlaws, essentially, right? I do not pray that you should take the, why not pray? Hey, let's go, we'll go. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil. There it is. All of them saved, eternal security, but the son of perdition. Not except, but. There isn't two lists. I'm sorry, there isn't one list, 
And everybody's on the list. Okay, they're all the same. Uh Uh-oh, this one didn't make it. He doesn't say except. Your Bible might. The word is but. This is where Jeffy is absolutely correct. You have to figure out what what word is really there. There's two lists. There's 11 on one list and there's one on the other list. That's what he's saying here. There's always been one on this list. He is not on this list. A list of eleven, a list of one, a list of none of them is lost, and a list that has the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's very important. Now to repeat, Jesus Christ, the the Lord God Almighty, calls this person, who we all agree is who, he calls Judas the son of perdition, and he says it aloud, as loud as he can, After he talks about them being saved, he says, the son of perdition. They all know what the son of perdition means. We don't know. But he calls Judas the son of perdition. That is a stunning thing, what he just did. He says it aloud to the eleven. In the eleven is John. John makes sure that you know what he meant. And he puts it all through his book of John and all through his... uh, Book of Revelation, not his, God's, but he gets to write it. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, the son of perdition is identified by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul as the Antichrist, as the man of sin, as the eighth mystery. Jesus Christ says, none is lost but the man of sin. None is lost but the Antichrist. None is lost but the eighth mystery man. And so Paul reveals that, by the way, he reveals it as a plain, known fact. Always be aware of that. But the key to all of this is John 17, 15. Within the context of the 11 men, because this is about the 11 men, and then the son of perdition. So within that context, two verses later, within the context of the Antichrist, son of perdition, that is Judas, Jesus Christ, God himself, adds this amazing, extraordinary, incredible verse. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil. And that is, wow. That's case closed. That's end of sermon. I can fold it here. I can stop. Who is the evil? In the context of the eleven and the one who is the son of perdition, he's saying, don't take them out of the world. Protect them from somebody. Protect them from who? The son of perdition. That's the context. This becomes more obvious when you look up the Greek word for evil used here. It can be translated, as most of you have it, translated. This is one, I hope you get this way when you hear me say this. This is one of those bone-chilling, hair-on-the-back-of-your-neck things. It can be translated evil one, and a lot of times it is. But that's not how it is to be translated. There's another way to translate it, and that's the way it is meant in the context. And that is evil one. 
Let me repeat it now. 17.15 I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil thing. There's an evil thing. And he has to keep, he wants them to be safe from the evil thing. And they need to know that they're going to be safe from the evil thing because the evil thing is close by. Who is the evil thing is the question. You would expect that, wouldn't you, in Scripture? This, as I said, in context for the son of perdition, it is best translated evil thing. Because just as Christ is the holy thing, Luke one thirty five, humanly indescribable or undescribable, Judas is the evil thing. He is the son of perdition. And we should have expected that, wouldn't we? The counterfeit would be obvious. God in the flesh calls Judas the son of perdition and the evil thing. He does it straight up. He doesn't stutter. It's as plain as he can do it. The evil thing, the seed of Satan, the king of the abyss... Judas. And us puny humans, we cannot understand the incarnation, the holy thing. We could never understand that. We don't have the mind, the ability. And this is not at that level by any means. This is a counterfeit. But I would expect God to call the counterfeit what it is, an evil thing. Yes. And tell me what you mean by the thing or not the same thing. Mm hmm. Right. No. Not the same. That's correct. The, the holy thing is the seed of the woman. And it is called a holy thing because it is not something that humans can describe or even understand. The evil thing is the seed of who? We are in Genesis 3.15, aren't we? The evil thing is the counterfeit, is the opposition to the holy thing. But I want you to understand that, one, there is an evil thing that is side by side with the holy thing. Not the same complexity, not the same person, certainly not, if that's what you thought. But... uh, the same in the sense that one is the original and the other is the fake. Jesus Christ calls Judas the fake, the counterfeit. He calls him the evil thing. And now you know what the eleven knew. And now you should ask the next obvious question. What's the next obvious question? I don't want to take you out of the world. But I'm going to keep you safe from the evil thing. What's the obvious question? Where's the evil thing? What's he doing? He's not there. But what's he going to do? Don't worry, I'm leaving. I'm see see you later. Don't worry. Evil thing won't get you. Well, 
Why did the apostles need to be protected from the evil thing? Didn't the evil thing just hang himself? Does that why why do I need to protect myself from somebody who hung himself? So the obvious question becomes, right? Revelation thirteen. That's the answer to the hanging self question. You know that, don't you? Those of you who have been here the last few weeks. But the evil thing somehow is a threat. How is it that he's a threat? Don't worry. You're protected from him. You'll be safe. From him. How's it go for the apostles? They're slaughtered. Absolutely pulled apart by horses. Hung upside down. Set fire to. Massacred. Boiled in oil. John was boiled. Didn't affect him. That converted a lot of Romans when that happened. But the evil thing didn't get them. They were protected from the evil thing. What do I want you to know? I want you to ask, why did the evil thing hang himself? Where did the evil thing go after he hung himself? How did he get there? We know where he went. Where did he go? He went to his own place where he is called the king of the abyss. How did he get there? Why did he go? What is the time period between the hanging of the evil thing and the going to the abyss of the evil thing? How much time between there? That's the obvious question. And when does the evil thing come out of the abyss? Yeah, sure does. Satan calls him up. Satan gets him out. Satan is allowed to bring the evil thing back onto the earth and the restraint, the restraining is ended. Okay. That is the end of this lecture. No more we will talk about the eighth mystery. Okay. A couple of months we won't talk about it. Let's stand and be dismissed. And Jen, come get this or from Lori. Our last song is uh, Be to Our God, and it's on page 13.